the standpoint of the innocent suffering, uh, we've talked about, I believe, several times here. I forget how many how many times because we had I've done so much in, in evidences and all. But on evidences for belief in God, uh, examining the various uh, approaches from the Bible and, and using our own mind and, and the way that it teaches us to approach that, that area. Really, though, the strongest argument that the atheists have posed against belief in God is, is not scientific but philosophical. Uh, even the most devout atheist will acknowledge that the argument for the existence of a creator from the standpoint of design or from the standpoint of the cosmos, from the standpoint of the cause-effect relationship is at least as strong as the argument that they would give against that thing. They would, uh, they would not uh, uh, push that aside as being in insignificant. Their argument that they really contend with in a strong way is the argument of evil uh, in the world and especially the, the argument of a situation where you have innocent people suffering. And the argument is based on the premise that if God is all good, where did evil come from? And if God is all powerful, why doesn't he destroy evil? In the Bible, there are a number of statements by great men recorded in the Old Testament who definitely have been plagued through the years. In fact, in the writings of mankind all through the years, people have been plagued uh, because of innocent people suffering. We have no problem with an individual who appears to us as, as wicked, uh, even in keeping with the principles that we can ascertain with our own, our own conscience. We have no problem with him suffering or, or paying the consequences uh, for his wickedness. But we've always had a real problem with what seemingly righteous and, and good people suffering. It's sort of like the thing with AIDS in our society. Uh, we don't, although we don't like anybody to get AIDS, we don't have near the problem with a homosexual that's acquired AIDS through his sexual practices as we do with an innocent baby uh, that has been born and, and has AIDS because of the practice of the parents. That really bothers us. Uh, we have no problems uh, with individuals who bring calamities under, on themselves uh, through various practices in life, even though we hate to see it happen. We at least that's understandable. We do have problems when uh, people who uh, are totally innocent and yet suffer because of various things in this life. Uh, there's things in our physical world that seems to pay no attention whatsoever to whether you're a good or a bad person. Uh, I mean, there's tornadoes, there's earthquakes, there are any number of natural calamities that happen on a regular basis, and perfectly innocent people are killed. Uh, in many parts of the world today, there are a lot of people that are starving, and not because of mistakes or crimes that they have committed. And so, if we have a God that is all good, and all-powerful, the question becomes, why do uh, people suffer uh, in so many ways, and especially why do the innocent suffer? Before getting specifically into the question of the innocent and the righteous suffering, I'd like to deal just with suffering in general and disease for just a few moments. And this won't answer that question, but at least it's going to deal with some part of the problem. In our own society, one of the things that we're coming to recognize more and more and more is a lot of our suffering 
uh, is caused by our actions, by our behavior, uh, by our practices in life. Uh, this article here, I'm just reading the bottom part of it, is from the last booklet on Does God Exist by John Clayton. He's a former atheist who worked with Madeleine O'Hara, who now is a devout Christian and lectures regularly in the field of Christian evidences. And in dealing with the subject of disease and how a, you know, a gracious God would allow or cause this kind of thing, uh, he makes a statement that uh, uh, heart disease, appendicitis, gallstones, varicose veins, hernia, hemorrhoids, cancer of the colon and rectum, and many other diseases might be added. And he mentioned that these are common diseases in our country. And yet in studies that have been made in Africa, these diseases are almost unheard of among the people in, in this country that doesn't have near our medical advances. In fact, heart disease, cancer of the colon, varicose veins, and a multitude of other things, gallstone problem, appendicitis, all of this together afflicts less than 1% of the population in the people in Africa. So obviously there's, there's something in the Western culture that causes this thing to exist in a way that it, it would not if, if we didn't eat or conduct ourselves the way we do. We all know, for example, that in just watching what has taken place recently in the realm of health, that it's hard to uh, pick up a cereal box and not read an advertisement where they're boasting about how much fiber they've got in the cereal. Well, when I was young, uh, they boasted that it was fiber-free. You know, everybody wanted white bread and white this and, and no fiber in it and real smooth. And, and I can remember even studying health and it pointed out that fiber had no food value whatsoever and so why not take it out? Well, we found out that fiber maybe doesn't have food value, but as it moves through your system, it picks up toxins. It also causes your food to flow in a smooth and even way through your intestinal tract. And consequently, that people that eat high fiber diets do not have problems with cancer of the colon or the intestinal tract. Well, what is true there can be said about a number of other things of our lifestyle. And by the way, uh, other people have their problems. For example, in Japan, they lead the world in cancer of the stomach. Well, their number one food, their, their cheap uh, food that they like is smoked fish. Well, a smoked uh, food uh, in a certain amount is not going to hurt you. But we know from studying their culture that if this is a steady thing with you, that it, you're going to have problems as a result of it. And there are any number of things you can point to in the air that you breathe, the water that you drink, that causes many of the problems that, that actually exist among us from a health standpoint. This is a book called None of These Diseases. Uh, S.I. McMillan published it initially. This is a revised edition by his uh, son-in-law, David Stern, who's also a doctor. And he takes the uh, statement in the Law of Moses where in giving the health code to the Israelites, God told them that if they obeyed this, that they would not have the diseases of the Egyptians and the pagan people. In the course of the book, he takes the Law of Moses, and then he also goes back and quotes uh, many of the statements from doctors that lived at that particular time and their health practices. And he points out, first of all, that here we are, 3,500 years this side of Moses, and you could not improve on the health code of the Law of Moses today. I mean, giving uh, their situation with no refrigeration, and no information that we have in certain areas concerning bacteria, etc. 
that you could not conduct yourself in a healthier way than by living in keeping with that health code. On the other hand, he gives numerous, numerous examples of the pagans and the various things that they did. In fact, if you really want to appreciate the health code and the law of Moses, it would be interesting to go back and, and read the health practices of the people in the days of Moses. In fact, even coming toward us, um, George Washington was bled to death. Uh, we, we believe that disease was because of impurities in the blood and, and people actually up until recent years bled and, and killed people, uh, not, not realizing, as the Bible said all the time, that the life of the flesh is, is in the blood. Suffice it to say that all through the centuries, mankind has been plagued by an absolute multitude of diseases that have come about simply because of his not adhering to the laws of nature. When it comes to the uh, sexual diseases, for example, I mentioned AIDS a while ago, that if sexuality was practiced as it is set forth in the Bible, there would be no AIDS in the human family. It just simply would not exist. It, it got into the human family first through the practice of beastology, and then after the bringing it into the human family from an animal, then the practice of homosexuality uh, spread it from that way on. But take practice your sexuality in the way that it's set forth in the Bible, we wouldn't have AIDS. What is true of AIDS is true with syphilis, gonorrhea, herpes, and a multitude of other sexual diseases. They simply would not exist in the human family if sexuality were practiced in keeping with the, the laws set down in the Bible. Well, not only is it true there, but there's any, any number of other areas uh, that we affect ourselves simply by not obeying certain laws that are here. Uh, here's an article, I took this out of, uh, this is February 11th, 1990. Some of you may have read this. Is anger killing you? And the article in this publication is, uh, by the way, all psychiatrists are unanimous on this now. It used to be in the theory category. It's, it's out of that theory category. But all psychiatrists and doctors are unanimous now in stating that your emotions play a tremendous factor in your physical health. In fact, uh, all that I read from says that over 50% of all our physical ailments are emotionally induced. They may be real and physical, but they're emotionally induced. Whether you're talking about ulcers, um, headaches, uh, a number of heart problems, that all go back and have a stress basis. Uh, here's another article. This was in the same publication a few weeks later on called Stress Busters, and it was dealing with the effect of stress on the human body and the mismanagement of that stress. Here's another article, the same type publication, uh, The Deadly Emotions. And it's interesting, the deadly emotions are things such as uh, uncontrolled anger, uh, not anger in itself now, but uncontrolled, mischanneled anger, hatred, uh, envy, uh, jealousy, uh, all of these things that are condemned in the Bible as sin are actually emotions that have a detrimental effect on the human body. And so all through the centuries, man has brought a lot of misery, a lot of plagues on himself, simply because of, number one, not adhering to the various laws of nature concerning his own physical health, his own physical body, and number two, it's interesting in the way that we're made, in fact, one of the evidences uh, of the truthfulness of, of this law is the fact that uh, spiritually and emotionally, we are designed to live in that way 
in, in so much so the case that we suffer the consequences in our physical body. In other words, you cannot deviate from those moral principles in the Bible and not suffer the consequences in your body. Anytime I do something wrong that I perceive as wrong, my conscience condemns me and I feel guilt. And as I walk with a state of guilt, I'm having a negative influence on my, on my body. Anytime I walk and worry about the future, that worry translates into negative things in my body, and it begin to, begins to have its influence there. Uh, uh, doctors are now pushing a type of medicine where when people go to the hospital, they, they want you to go, they want you to cheer them up, they want you to make them laugh, uh, and they talk about the positive effects uh, of a good attitude and laughter and things like that on the body. Remember the proverb that a, that a cheerful heart doeth good to the bones like uh, medicine? Well, now that, that obviously Solomon made a tremendous observation back even then. All right, suffice it to say that when people look at us or when we look at ourselves and when we look at our society, and when we look at all the various things and we say, oh, you know, that um, God has visited us with cancer and God has visited us with hardening of the arteries and God is, has done this. And, and we take this as something that, you know, God has given to us as part of our punishment for, for going back to the, to, to the sin and our being in sin at, at this point in time. But in reality, many of these things, maybe most, actually fall in a category that that God has set up laws and to the extent that we operate within those laws we reap benefits we reap them in our own emotions in our spirituality we reap them in our physical body to the extent that we deviate from these laws we reap consequences uh, and we reap them in an absolute multitude of ways for example on that article on stress we live in a society where uh, many marriages wind up divorced. In fact, now it's up over 50%, although that's somewhat misleading, I might add, that uh, 70% of people, uh, far 70% of the people, it's still until death do you part. But the other 30% get divorced and remarried so many times that we wind up with a count that's 50%. But it's bad enough that children today who are starting school the, by the time they finish high school, only 30% of them will live in a traditional family at the rate we're going right now, a traditional family where you have a, both a, their normal husband, the normal dad, and the normal mom there. All right, my point on that is that, that one of the greatest stressors that mankind encounters is divorce. It's, it's right up there with death of a child or death of a mate, that divorce is right in there as a stressor. So I'm saying that when people live lives where they have all these divorces and they, they have all these hard feelings and there's such a lack of tranquility and all. Well, don't let them kid you. I don't care if it's Johnny Carson with his four marriages or Liz Taylor with, with her eight. They're made in the image of God, too. And they can't flaunt God's law and not reap the benefit in their own bodies. They do. They reap it in their mind. They reap it in their bodies. They reap it in their emotional system. Uh, we, we see it in an Elvis Presley, we see it in a Marilyn Monroe, we see it in a Freddie Prince, we see it all over our society, that we are made to operate in harmony with certain moral and spiritual and physical laws, and to the extent that we deviate, there are consequences to pay within the life itself. Suffice it to say that, that what we're arguing here, number one is, 
And like the psalmist said in Psalms 19, God's law is perfect. Uh, his law is perfect and it works. And the same God who gave the, the moral laws also gave the laws of nature. And so if, if I flout the laws of gravity, I'm going to pay the consequences. And, and if I build my house uh, uh, right close to where I know there's going to be a volcano, I'm going to pay the consequences. If I build my house right out on the seacoast, knowing that hurricanes come in every so often, I'm going to pay the penalty. If I build my house right down on the riverbed where I know the river's going to overflow every now and then, I'm going to pay the penalty. If I want to live in Los Angeles, uh, when I know, without any doubt in my mind, it's just a matter of time before another earthquake, might very well pay the penalty, and the same is true with Memphis. And so suffice it to say, there are laws of nature that's there. And we, with our God-given intellect, study and, and become aware of these things, and then we make decisions, uh, like we make decisions when we drive about the speed limit, etc. In the same way that there's moral laws, and, and we make decisions there. All right, the contention of the Bible, all the way through, whether we're uh, we're in Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, where God is promising them so many good things that they'll walk within his law and not to have the diseases of the Egyptians and be prosperous, etc. Uh, to the statements made in the New Testament, the contention is that as a general rule of life, that we can live much healthier, much longer, much more successful lives to the extent that we live in harmony with this law. But notice I said much more. We're not going to live forever. We're not going to live without sickness. We're not going to live without disease. And there is going to be suffering. But we're saying that we, the closer that we come uh, to the perfection of that law, the more of those things that are going to be alleviated from our lives. Now, we're in, up to Job. And we're going to look at the, the next part of the question. We, we can see the, the perfect laws of God. And, and we can see that uh, we reap benefits to the extent that we can harmonize ourselves uh, morally, spiritually, and physically with those laws. No. But then the question has to be answered uh, concerning the suffering of, of innocent people. And by the way, along, along the way, we want to answer another question. There are some evangelists, uh, and some of the TV evangelists are real big on this, who leave the impression that uh, that if you're righteous and you've got faith in God and, and you're really walking upright, that man, you don't have to worry about sickness. You say, if you just have enough faith, you're going to be, you're going to be healthy and, and you're going to be prosperous and wise and all these good things are going to happen to you. And some of these TV evangelists uh, prance around in their five and six hundred dollar suits and, and they justify their wealth on the fact that they're such godly people. And they're doing the will of God, and, and all this money is just simply uh, flowing into them. And they preach a message that, man, you, you start giving and you start doing, and, and all that's going to flow in, in your direction, too. Uh, I've been in services where I've heard preachers speak. If I had had some physical problem, uh, I, I would have been embarrassed to admit it because I would have been saying that, hey, I just don't have any faith in the Lord because the impression is left that, well, you know, if I had enough faith, I wouldn't have that. Well, if a person is taught that and they believe it, I guarantee you they're going to have problems somewhere in life. And no one of us get out of this, this world alive. We're all going to die, and well, people don't die. Uh, there's no, so we don't die of old age. Uh, we die of sickness and disease uh, that we catch. And, and along the way, every single solitary hardship that can happen will happen. 
it's just a matter of time. I mean, after all, what is the worst? Think of the worst things that could possibly happen to you. In your your life and uh, your wife, uh, Mark, what's the worst possible thing that you can conceive of happening to you right now? Me? Uh-huh. In your family? Well, Luke or Nancy done. Sure. That That's the worst thing you can conceive of. I've got six children and a wife. I can't conceive of anything that would, that would just shock me more. But Luke's eventually going to die, isn't he? And Nancy's going to die. It's just a matter of time. All my six children are going to die and my wife's going to die. Okay, what about if you get the news that, uh, you know, that you're going to die, that we're going to... So and there are some that when we talk about the problems of life, all our children die. And all our wives and all our husbands die and all our mothers and fathers die and all our loved ones die. Uh, there's no one of us, that, what he mentioned there, would, I would say with any one of us, ask any married couple with children, what is the worst thing that could come to them? And they'd say the, the death of a child. In fact, uh, Barbara and I just went to a funeral this past week of uh, two teenage girls uh, seniors at Grundy County High School were killed in a car wreck. And, and the mother just absolutely distraught. I mean, just totally uh, distraught as a, as a result of it. Uh, the hardest funeral I ever conducted in my life was a, was a young man that I had had when he was in the elementary school where I'm principal. And before he gets out of high school, he's killed in a wreck. And they asked me to conduct the funeral. Uh, distraught. But it's going to happen to all mine. And, and to all years. So I'm saying that, that people that leave that impression, if you just think every bad thing that can possibly happen, that death's worse going to happen to all of us, is there anybody that doesn't get sick? We all do, don't we? We, we all do. We all get sick, and, and, and we all uh, suffer. Uh, right now, in our neighborhood, uh, a man that is the brother of one of the members of the congregation where I preach, just as godly an individual, he's, he worships with a different group down the street. But he's as godly an individual as you'd want to meet. Very wholesome individual. Uh, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink. He's got a happy, positive type attitude, has had through the years. He's dying of cancer right now. Uh, terminal cancer. His liver's just about destroyed and it's spreading through his body. And so he has that. Well, the interesting thing is, he comes from a background where he's, he honestly believed that, uh, that if you have enough faith and everything like that, that things like that shouldn't happen to you. But it is happening. Uh, and that he's, he has the cancer, and, and he, is going, he, is going, he is going to die. So let's look at this now and, and answer the question, why in the world do the righteous suffer? Uh, why do we all, now we've, we've already nailed down the perfection of God's laws, and we can definitely reap benefits and everything like that, but, but all of this is from within a relative standpoint, not, not perfectly. Uh, will we reap perfect health or anything of this nature? We are all, uh, in many ways, going to suffer consequences as we go through this life, and we're going to watch righteous people suffer all along the way. Okay, look at the first part, and I'm just going to glean this now, pick out a, a few highlights within the book. In the land of us there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright, and he feared God and shunned evil. Uh, he had seven sons and three daughters. Notice it's a book about Job, not written by Job. 
He had seven sons, three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, etc. Okay, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Uh, and then notice uh, down here at about verse uh, 5, it said he would sacrifice burnt offerings for each of his children, thinking that perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And, and this was Job's regular custom. So he's extremely right, righteous. He's renowned for his righteousness. He's extremely prosperous. Uh, he's so conscientious that he even offers sacrifices uh, for sins that he may not even be aware of that went through the heart of his children. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Now, first of all, it's interesting that uh, Satan's having this conversation with God, isn't it? I mean, we ever wondered, uh, we talk about, say, why didn't God destroy Satan? Why does he let him have any power whatsoever, you know? Uh, Satan came with him, and the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth, going back and forth in it. So he's especially in tune to this earth. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Okay, now this is interesting. And, I, and this, I believe, is, the, is going to be the key to understanding a whole lot about suffering, especially of the innocent here on this earth. Job is obviously a righteous man. We don't have to guess, right, because God identifies him as a righteous man. We also see that uh, God has purposely made a decision uh, when it says that Satan comes into the presence of God with the other angels there. Satan is simply a word that means adversary. And, and in Peter in the New Testament, we read of angels who were created before us that rebelled uh, against God. And we read that concerning the angels in general, that they are ministering spirits for those of us that will inherit salvation, uh, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. And so, apparently, the, the angels have been created as free will agents in the spiritual realm before man was made in God's image on this earth. All right, man then, after the angels, has been put here on this earth. Remember when Jesus spoke of the resurrection in Matthew 22? He said that uh, there would be no marriage or given in marriage, but we would be as the angels in heaven. And so that uh, we're a spiritual being, according to the Bible, in a physical body. Eventually there will be a release from this physical body and we will have an abode in the spiritual realm comparable to what the angels, he said, as, as the angels. But the angels were before man. Okay, now, here's Satan, an angel that is an has taken up an adversary position against God. But notice now, God doesn't destroy him. Uh, Satan has challenged God's definition of rightness. And he's challenged God. And, and it's interesting to me that God doesn't destroy him. Uh, uh, one time, uh, an atheist, I'm trying to think of the man's name, he's renowned, not Voltaire, but this was in the 1890s, and he was lecturing a large audience uh, going through the United States and, you know, with his proofs against God, and then he took out his little watch and he cursed God and, and said, I'm going to prove to you right now there's no God, and he cursed God and then he gave God five minutes to strike him down. He didn't get struck down. That was his proof there was no God. He just cursed the creator of the universe. If he existed, he challenged him. He put him to the test, gave him five minutes, 
and he and he didn't do it. And and uh, and by the way, this is an argument uh, from from the atheist. Uh, God is all good and all powerful and all. Why does he allow uh, people to stand and curse him and to be wicked and and to just simply continue on your course in this line? Well, he allowed Satan to continue on. In fact, if Satan is challenged the will of God and deviated from it and left of his own free will and so God says Satan I'm going to destroy you and all the angels that have followed you would this prove that God's way is right? It wouldn't. What would it prove? He's stronger. Prove he's stronger. More powerful. Uh, sure. If, if, uh, if I'm the leader of a country and, 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 and I've got the, I can have you thrown in jail or executed like uh, Saddam Hussein that I can have you executed anytime I want to and so you challenge me and you say that hey I believe you're making a mistake here that that's wrong and so I just have you executed that don't prove my plan is right just prove that you know I'm in a position to execute you if I, if I so desire and so to destroy Satan would not prove that God is right. Prove he's more powerful. In the same way when it comes to evil on this earth. For God just to step in and to destroy it wouldn't prove that God's way is right. Just prove God has the power to snuff out anybody anytime he wants to. Now, another question. God has said his law is perfect, correct? And he says his law is perfect, it's, it's absolutely right. What if when people walk with God's law and they deviated, every time they deviated from God's law, God come down and zapped them in some mysterious way? Would that prove that God's law is right? I mean, that if, if I walk and I'm obeying God's law, then God just walks around me with special angels and, and he sees to it that nothing bad ever happens to me or anything like that. Uh, that wouldn't prove his law is right to Satan or anybody else. Well, what if, uh, if uh, in doing what is right, every time I do something that is right, I obey God's law. I obey God's law, say, in my marriage. I, I follow the instructions that God has set forth. I pick out the kind of mate that, uh, that he tells me to. Uh, I treat her like he says and everything like that. And then as a result of doing that, he steps into my marriage in a mystical way, and we just have a great relationship. Would that prove that God's law of marriage was right? It wouldn't. I mean, it proved God had the power to do things. Uh, but if I take God's law and God doesn't interfere, and he doesn't step in and, and sack me when I do wrong, and he doesn't step in in some mystical way and, and, do, and do good things in my life when I do good. But as a result of following that law, when I do right, I start to reap benefits in various ways. And when I deviate from it, there are consequences in various ways. Would that be proof that his way is right and the other way is wrong? That would, that would be what we would call proof, right? The same way a scientist would approach an experiment. That, 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 would, be, that would be proof. If, if God gives a law, and then there are certain things there. So I'm saying that, 
that if God is operating a demonstration here, that what we're going to see here is that God has reasons for not stepping in and doing the very things that sometimes we want God to step in and do. Okay, now, he identifies uh, uh, the righteousness of Job. We have Satan coming in the presence of God. And then he makes his appearance and all. And God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Uh, there's no one like him. He's blameless, upright, a man who fears God, shuns evil. All right, now notice in verse 9, Job says, or Satan, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've you blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he'll surely curse you to his face. Okay? Satan does not deny that Job is a righteous man in God's eyes, that he is pursuing what is, that, that he's, he has made a decision on his own to pursue what God says is right. But what is Satan's argument for Job's reason in doing this? What God's given him. Okay, he said, in other words, greed is the number one motivation for doing righteous. Oh man, it bothers me when I hear preachers stand up and tell people to give because if you give, you know that you're even going to get richer in the process. Well, when I give, I have less money. Uh, that uh, you know, I haven't, and I haven't had any strange monies mailed to me or anything like that. You know, but uh, the what is the? In other words, when a person gives because you think that hey, if I give so much this Sunday, then I might receive a letter in the mail giving me twice as much. Well, why have you given? Have you given out of love, or because you think it's the right thing to do, or you just want more money? Um, so, Job has made this statement to God. He says, "Sure." Look at the way you blessed him, okay? The Lord said to Satan, very well. Everything he has is in your hands, on the man him, but on the man himself don't lay a finger. Okay, we get all these negative things that happen to Job. Just about everything imaginable happens to his family, happens to his belongings. He loses everything. We read verse 20. Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground in worship, and says... Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Well, now we begin to see something. Job's service of God is not based on God guaranteeing him prosperity, is it? Job's service of God seems to be based on his love and reverence for God because God is the creator. And we're going to see as we proceed through here, Job's attitude towards right was right was to be done simply because it was the right thing to do. Do you know that you really don't know how honest you are until you're put in a situation where where lying will be an advantage to you and honesty at disservice. Uh, it's very easy for me to be honest if I bring home a report card with all A's. You know, that doesn't prove I'm an honest person. It's very very easy to be honest with that. I can, I can say all kinds of positive things about myself or anybody in my family in a very honest way. But when you ask me something, we're telling the truth. 
makes me look bad or is going to uh, mean that I, I can't hang my head, stick my head up so high in pride and it's going to show that, I'm, that I've got some weaknesses. Now, now that's difficult. That's a, that's a difficult thing to, to deal with. That uh, the idea put forth in the Bible is that right is to be done because of right's sake. That I shouldn't tell the truth simply because honesty is the best policy and I may make more money. But I'll tell the truth because God is truth and God has asked me to be honest and it's the right thing to do. And so if being honest means I make less money, then I'm still going to be honest. And that is a love for rightness itself. And so Job right away demonstrates that that his belief and trust in God is not based on prosperity. Uh, Job, in fact, it comes out, Job doesn't understand all that's going on. But what is he showing? He's showing trust in God. You know, we're, we're finite beings. We, we look at a small part of the picture. God sees it all. He shows his trust in God. Okay. Satan goes back and, uh, and God says, well, if you consider Job again, look at what's happened. Well, Satan's still not impressed. He says, sure, you've taken all these God, you've taken his family, but let's touch his flesh. Let's just make him nauseous to other people. Let's, let's put him in pain. And I guarantee you, if you put him in pain, he'll turn and you, he'll cuss you. Well, it got so bad that, look at verse 9, when he had all his sores, verse 7 now, all his sores and he's afflicted from the, to the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. He took a broken piece of pottery, verse 8, and scraped himself. And notice what his wife says, verse 9. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. It was that bad. Job replies, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So what we're seeing here, and Job, by the way, we, we talk about the patience of Job. The book is not about patience. James uses it as an example of patience. But the book is not about patience. God could not have used Job if Job were not a patient man. But that's not what it's about. The three friends come on the scene. And everybody here that if you've read the, the book of Job, if, and if you have, I'll call it to your memory. If you have, have not, I'll just uh, give you a synopsis of it. Three guys, three of Job's friends, come on the scene. And they all lecture Job. The first they they show their sorrow. They sit there for seven days and don't say anything. They weep. They're really concerned. But then they all begin to talk. Anybody want to remember, all three of them were in agreement. Why was Job having these kind of problems? Sin. Every last... All right, now notice their understanding, and it comes out in every one of their speeches. If you obey God, you will not suffer these kind of things. And on the other hand, those kind of things come only through the wicked. All right? Job answers each of the three men, and notice he always in, defends his integrity. He always defends his righteousness. And he says, no, I could not. By the way, Job wasn't claiming perfection. He offered his sacrifices and everything. But he says, no, I know that it's not because of my sin. There's just no way. So, But the interesting thing is now, before this has happened to Job, Job has the same background that the other fellows do. 
And it was universally believed among the followers of the one God. In fact, the Jews claimed to this belief all the way up to the time of Jesus. Uh, remember when in John 9, they see a blind man and the statement they make to Jesus, has this man sinned or his parents? They couldn't conceive. If you were born blind, you were a sinner. It was that simple. Somebody has sinned. The Jew, remember when Jesus said in, in Luke, the 13th chapter, that now if you, the, he mentioned that the people that the tire fell out and were killed, and then he mentioned about the Galileans that were killed, and see, they attributed that to the sin of the people. He says, I tell you, no. They were not worse sinners than anybody else. But if you don't repent, you're going to perish. But they had it in their mind that every time something bad happened to somebody, it was because of their sin. And Jesus says, no. That's not, that's not necessarily so, that, that it's specifically because of that sin. So, Job now has the same understanding, but we begin to see something. There are some lessons in life that we learn through experience, and you and I are blessed, and that we're learning through the experience of Job, just like we learn a lot through the experiences of Solomon. So, Job has had this same idea too. And this comes out in the story. But Job now says, hey, that is wrong. The righteous do suffer. Okay, so throughout the book, they challenge Job time and time again. And they just get disgusted with him. They think he's an absolute uh, proud individual for challenging God and all because he will not just repent and everything be okay, but they have the idea of Job repent and everything is going to be okay. And Job's argument is no, it wasn't brought about because of sin. All right, now, this is the purpose of the book itself. The righteous do suffer. And just because a person has cancer or has a heart problem or because he's blind or because he's deformed doesn't mean that that individual is somewhat more of a sinner than, than other people out here. He may be more righteous than people who have none of those problems. By the way, in the New Testament, how healthy was Paul? Not very healthy, was he? I don't know what his thorn in the flesh was, but I know for a, for a non-complainer like Paul to, to complain three different times to God and, and want rid of it, it had to be pretty bad. And God said, no. You know, I've, I've got a reason for that, Saul. What about Timothy? Uh, Timothy, I know you've got some problems. Take a little wine for your stomach's sake and your many infirmities. What about Trophimus? When he was left behind in Miletus 6, 2 Timothy 4, and verse 20, you know, was he a bad guy? He was, he was Paul's, one of Paul's best helpers. Yet he got sick and had to be left behind. The righteous do suffer. And that's the message of Job. And the idea of serving God because he's sitting up there like a rich man and going to drop money down or, or make you healthy and wealthy and wise is a misunderstanding. God is to be served because he's God. And everything he says is right. And even though I may not understand every single solitary thing that happens, that still doesn't mean that God isn't right and he's got an end result for everything that does happen. And the righteous do suffer. So we go through the book. And, and this concept is developed. That the fact that, that, yes, the righteous do suffer, and we see constantly that they refuse to accept that Job could be anything but a wicked person. Finally, as we get to the end, a fellow comes on the scene by the name of Eliphaz, and he condemns the other three, talks about how wise he is, and then he lies into Job. But you know, as we go through here, we notice something else. 
Job is corrected by God. Anybody remember the last chapter, sir? You know, it's often portrayed like, hey, Job had it all right. No, he didn't. Job had a lesson to learn. And we began to see something in, in this suffering that God has allowed. Satan is learning a lot. Those three are learning a lot. Job is learning a lot. We're learning a whole lot by looking at the whole story. Job thought of himself as a righteous person. And all through here, he boasts of his integrity and he boasts of his righteousness. And he begins to challenge God. And he wants a mediator between him and God. And he thinks that God has been unfair to him. And so he begins to challenge and to correct God. And, and on the one hand, he believes in God, believes very strongly. And he believes in what is right. And he's not serving God just because of, of prosperity or anything like that. But he begins to challenge God, and he honestly believed that he does not deserve this. And we began to see something. And this is part of the message. Nobody is righteous. When we say a man is good, we mean good in a relative sense. He's good in comparison to other people. Remember Isaiah with all his goodness? When, when God called him to be a prophet and, and he fell on his knees when he, when he saw the vision and God appeared to him and he spoke of being un, how unclean he was and he didn't feel like coming to the presence of God and he made this statement that all our righteousness is as a filthy rag before God. We all fall short. We all benefit and everything like that to a certain degree. But we said we're all going to die. You know why we're going to die? Because we deserve to die. We're everyone's sinners. And we deserve to die. My children are going to deserve to die. My wife deserves to die. Every funeral I've ever conducted, they deserve to die. I deserve to die. And to say otherwise is to challenge God. The death penalty is from God. And it's because of sin. Paul said, death passed unto all men because all have sinned. Romans 5, 12 through verse 20. And so we all sin. And when we think of ourselves as being good, and we say that uh, Mark is an honest man, or that I am an honest man, or that Mark is an honest man, or that Nick is an honest man, now, I'll let them speak for themselves, not out loud. I think of myself as an honest man. I am not a 100% perfectly honest person. Even doing my best, I am not perfectly honest. And I know that. And I've never met a perfectly honest person. Not 100%. We say Christians are honest in comparison to others because we believe honesty is right and we shoot in that direction. And the same when it comes to all the other various things that I believe, like, remember what Paul said in Romans 7 and 8? When he said the law was good and holy and right, but the problem was here. And he said, wretched man that I am, what am I going to do? Thanks be to God. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. We're going to be saved, not because we're righteous, but because Jesus was righteous. And so what Job is learning a lesson, Job, yes, the purely right, you're not purely righteous. You too are a sinner. So at the end of the demonstration, all kinds of misunderstandings have been cleared up. Job has found out, first of all, he is not a 100% righteous person, that he is a sinner too. He respects God's law. He's doing right. God's even bragged about him. That's great. But he's not perfect. 
On the other hand, these other people that had the idea that the reason for serving God is to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and that if you serve God that you were guaranteed this kind of thing, they just simply were in error. That's not so. And another thing that Job brings up over and over and over is that the wicked prosper. That's true. That's true. How, uh, how many of you are living as well as, as some of these people out that have been married? When I think of uh, the Johnny Carsons and the Liz Taylors and the, and the host out there that uh, live in the way they do, and I see the fantastic houses they live in and the cars they drive and the clothes they wear and the money they spend and the servants they've got, uh, and they seem to be laughing all the time, outwardly anyway. And then on the other hand, I know devout Christians who eke out a living. And, and, and the man and wife both work all week long to, to eke out a living, and they, and they struggle to make ends meet. Uh, we're prosperous in comparison. Those of you, you, all of you know people that, that are very righteous in comparison to other people who don't have near what Nancy and Mark have here or what I'm sure that, that you have and others. There are people out there in very humble circumstances uh, who are very righteous. Um, when it comes to pure righteousness, I don't know about you, but I don't come up to Mother Teresa by a long shot. Uh, she puts me to shame. And so Job learned something. We're not all righteous. They learned something, and Satan learned something. God's way is right. It's inherently right. There are benefits when you do it. But the reason for serving God is out of love and faith because he's God. And God brings this home in the last couple of chapters of the book. What he does, he asks Job a lot of fantastic questions that nobody's ever answered and still can't answer to this day. We watch the ant, and we marvel at what the ants do, and we don't understand it. We marvel at what birds do by instinct, but we don't understand it. And no evolutionist has explained yet how instinct evolves. I mean, every instinct they have, they need it for survival and, and for existence. And, and animals through instinct do things that baffle even those of us who have genius IQs. We cannot figure out the bees and, and all the various things they do and the ants and, and all kinds of things within nature itself. Uh, we can look and describe biology, but we, we sure don't understand it. So God brings that home to Job. He says, well, Job, how much do you understand? His whole point is... Finite man is absurd when it comes to challenging the creator of the universe. We see only small parts of anything at a time. God is infinite. He sees the whole picture. What seems like unfairness in the short run may in the long run be perfectly understandable. Now, let's go to the New Testament and notice something about this thing of, of again, the righteous suffering and what is happening. Turn over to Romans the 8th chapter. Romans the 8th chapter. I don't know what the preachers do with this, that think that walking by faith in God is, is going to guarantee to make you healthy and wealthy and wise and all these good things happen to you. Verse 18 of chapter 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that would be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as Son, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is, is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit helps our weakness. We do not know how to, we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and words it cannot express. And he who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Okay, now, look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. But what is he saying there? When he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger. We're facing death all day long. We're considered a sheep for the slaughter. He says, none of this can separate you from the love of God, but what about it, so far as living on this earth is concerned? Since you undergo all of that, right? The Christians were, as a result of being Christians, they were having troubles, hardship, persecution. Nobody had any more than Paul. They, were, they had times of famine, nakedness, danger. They were facing death. Man by the thousands, Nero executed them in his gardens. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. All right, notice what he said. And Paul says it is a man that spends more time in jail than he does walking free, doesn't he? He says it is a man who's been beaten a number of times with a whip, been shipwrecked, been hungry, been without, had his best friends forsaken. One time he writes, Demas is with me. The next time Demas has, fors has forsaken me. Uh, he, he writes from jail. He says, I know the time of my departure is hand. Secular history records that he was executed by Nero. Paul was anything but healthy, wealthy, and wise. And yet he loved God, and he believed in God's law. But notice now, God's law is perfect. And if everybody in the world perfectly kept God's law, there would be no evil in this world. There wouldn't be any suffering of innocent people. But everybody doesn't keep it. Number one, no one of us keeps it perfectly. Number two, the vast majority who have lived don't even attempt to keep it and totally reject God. So what does that mean? Remember we said that in God's demonstration, he has proved, what he's proving is that his law is perfect. It's inherently right. It's right in and of itself. It's, it's not right because God forces it, but it's inherently right. 
So the end result is that righteous people have many times, in other words, when we look at Paul and those Christians he's writing to, they're suffering all those things. Are they suffering because of their righteousness in the sense that their righteousness brought them on this, or are they suffering because of the sins of other people? Suffering because of the sins of others, aren't they? That you and I live in a world where people have free choice, and so on the way home tonight, it may very well be that some drunk will run over me. And as a perfectly innocent person, I'll be put to death. Now, I'm not saying that, that I'm strictly at the mercy of that drunk, uh, that I believe in the providence of God. And, and just like with Job, God could allow this to happen to Job, or he could not. It was God's choice. But I'm saying that God has made, not made any promise that he's going to follow us around and spare us of everything. But notice what happens from a good standpoint spiritually. As I live in a world with Hitler's and Hussein's and the Ayatollah, and as I live in a society like our own with, with the corruption, whether you're talking about the savings and loan or the political scene or whatever it is and all the problems you have in life and the dishonesty and everything like that, and we all suffer consequences. We, we all do for our own sins and the sins of everybody else, and, we're, and we suffer in a multitude of ways. But what is the good that's coming out of all of this? We're learning to love God's law. We're learning to see that it's absolutely right. It's perfect. Uh, all the years, in the early years that I preach, I always said that, you know, thou shalt not condemn, commit adultery. You know, adultery is wrong. And I preached it and believed it. But now, as an older man, I can say that I honestly abhor the act of adultery. The reason is that, that two different times... I have seen a congregation almost destroyed because of a, and families destroyed because of a very prominent member of the congregation who ran around his wife, made passes at other ladies, divorces resulted, people left the church, the disrespect, disarray, children were hurt, all because of a couple of men who were absolutely, I not only look at adultery now as, as something that is just a physical thing, I look at it as a selfish, greedy act where an individual is, is so concerned about himself that he could care less about his wife, he could care less about his children, he could care less about the other person's mate, he could care less about the church, he could care less about anything, and so I abhor it. But until I had that ugly experience in these two congregations, I didn't feel that way. You see, I that. It, it, I knew it was wrong, obviously. But I can honestly say that I hate that sin. And I think my, my I had a couple of my, one of my daughters talking to me a couple of weeks back, and she said she honestly believed that her and her sister, I've had two daughters get married the last couple of years, that what they experienced in those congregations had the in deep influence on them on the type of man that was attractive to them. Both of these men were these outgoing, personal-type people that could just turn on anybody, and they were very good with the ladies and all. And, and, and my gals have just about reached a point where that personality is almost repugnant to them, uh, the, the type of person that's always even flirting with the girls and, and trying to be a turn-on and all because they saw the consequences. They, they saw their best friends uh, devastated because of what happened in their family and all. Well, what is true there is true with any sin. 
that as we experience the consequences, we learn to hate the sin and we learn to love God's law. And so it means that for a few years here, yes, innocent people suffer. And yes, I may get AIDS, you may get AIDS, uh, whatever might happen to us. We can be killed by a drunk. But all of this is happening because of a gracious God that we've sinned against and who by his wisdom has prepared consequences for sin that are of such a nature as to cause us to grow and develop and mature and reach a point in our life where we love what is right and hate what is wrong. And that's the way he wants us to head off into eternity. And when we look at eternity, those few years we're here are, are nothing. It's like going to the doctor and you take that little painful shot because it's going to protect you maybe from polio or something else. And we're perfectly willing to take that little painful shot in order to not have some particular disease. And so in the same vein, I don't believe we could be created and not have this experience. God's law would be right because he said so. But what does it mean to avoid the stove because it's hot if you've never been burned? We're going into eternity as, as people who honestly love God's law and know it's right, and it's the only way that works, and we respect the wisdom of our loving Creator and working things out in the way that it is. And so this earth, with all its bad, is the perfect place for developing souls in the way that God would have them to. And I don't think there's any book that handles that better than the, than the book of Job. Okay. Anybody want to make any comments? questions or anything on the study? So you think God intended all along for suffering to exist? Doesn't want it, but God obviously knew that we would sin. There's nothing that God doesn't know. He knew that we would sin. And that just as you know, you, when you and I have children, we know they're going to disobey us, right? But yet we still want them. And we know it's going to be a real uh, challenge to bring those children all the way into adulthood, and we know that they have free choice, yet we still want those children. Yeah. And so the end result of fellowship with that child, uh, somebody that loves us, is worth enough to us that we're willing to undergo all that we have to do. And so when this child's coming up, we spank him, we sit him in the corner, uh, you know, we take, we take away privileges, uh, we scold him. Uh, the environment sometimes seems unpleasant to him, but he may not understand it, but what we're doing is we're, we're developing his character and his personality and trying to get him to see right and wrong and, and, and things of that nature. In the same way our Heavenly Father deals with us. And just like death is discipline from God. And when, like when the Hebrew writer speaks of don't, you know, the discipline of God and, uh, and not to despise it, he's not speaking to ungodly people out there. No, he's writing to Christians to tell them not to despise the discipline of God. And so the unpleasant things of, of life are there because of sin, but they are actually discipline and actually cause us to see what is right. And have you ever thought about it from the standpoint of how much hungering and thirsting after God and seeking out would we do if we, if we did never, if we didn't die, if we didn't age, we were just healthy all the time. Uh, I know I can appreciate that more. I think I'm, I'll be pretty close to 51 
And of course, the older you get, I think you think a little more about, uh, even though it can happen at any time, you, you begin to think, hey, I've got X amount of years to, to, you know, to be a viable person. And you begin to, to think about those type of things. Aging, as much as I hate it, and I, my mom, every time when I go home, she tells me that's the hardest thing she's ever done in her life is, is, is to age, you know. But it's the most spiritual thing that's happening to me. That uh, it, it really, aging and being in a body that's fragile and subject to diseases helps me to keep life in perspective as to where the real important things are. I think when I get the flu, it's good for me. That it, uh, I sit out and reflect on, and it's so easy to take this body for granted that God has given us. And then when I get sick, it, it number one, it, it makes me more empathetic towards others. And, and it makes me realize that, hey, there, you know, that I've got something that I'm just uh, taking for granted. I believe every bad experience can have a positive spiritual thing as a, as a result of it. Can we uh, say that suffering is necessary for uh, spiritual maturity? Yes, I, I believe so. Uh, a good, we all... The Bible says that uh, Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That's real good. Hebrews 5. Uh, Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. Uh, uh, we've all used the term a spoiled child. What do we mean by a spoiled child? We, we, we all know it. We, we say that the parent has taken discipline out of the life of that child. And, and they actually, the child that's being spoiled, the parent is approaching it from the standpoint of making the child happy. And so they, what do they do? They remove discipline. And he just does what he wants to, and, it, and, 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 and they let, it, let him go. And so we wind up with what we call a spoiled child. And we contrast that to a child that's been disciplined. It means this child gets a spanking, or however you discipline. He gets a TV taken away from him. He gets various things. He gets scolded. He gets reprimanded. He gets corrected. And so the end result is a different type child than the child that's spoiled. I think we'd all be spoiled if, if we were not disciplined. That, uh, I think the character uh, is developed as a result of uh, negative things that happen. I think a good com uh, commentary on that Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those He loves and punishes everyone He accepts as His son. In dear hardship, it's discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirit? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while. They thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Okay, and remember that's written to Christians who are suffering persecution. And on the one hand, God's not doing that. People are doing it through sin. But yet God is allowing that as development and, and discipline in the, in the process. In fact, uh, the proverb writer says that the man who loves his child chastens him, and the person who hates his child does not discipline the child. Uh, that it, uh, it actually, and, and, and God, of course, deals with us, and same way he asks us to deal with our own children. I stopped a little bit short. He says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness. 
piece for those who have been trained by it. I was thinking too. What is to produce righteous people that can live with them. Right, and we wouldn't need it if we were perfect. Uh, and of course, the lesson to Job was that Job, you're not perfect. You're a righteous man in comparison to others, but you're not perfect. And and the lesson to them was know that yes, righteous people do suffer. Uh, John Clayton, or, is everybody here familiar with John Clayton or the one I mentioned earlier? The Mark is, I know he's a former atheist who worked with Madeline O'Hara, a devout Christian now. But anyway. John and his wife uh, could not have children, so they adopted three children, two girls and a boy. One of the little boys that he developed, in fact, he's up now, he's, I guess, late 20s, but he found out within just the first few weeks that the child was severely retarded. In fact, he has an IQ of 52. You know that retarded is 70 and below, so uh, 52 is, is way down there. And they offered to take the child back because he was so severely retarded, and John made the decision to keep him. And he's had all kinds of problems. Right now, the, the child is blind. Uh, he has all kinds of emotional problems. I mean, he really has organic brain problems. But he's got a tape out where he talks about how much that he's learned as a result of the experience with that child. And by the way, he's got a fantastic tape and also booklet out on the difference between the human and the soul and, and the animal uh, within us. That, uh, and he points out that, that he compares his child to a chimpanzee. And a chimpanzee has an IQ of in, in the 80s. An in intelligent chimpanzee will check out with an IQ in the 80s. Here's his child with an 80, 52. And he names all the things that this chimpanzee can do that has an IQ in the 80s that his child simply cannot do of an intellectual nature. But then he begins to relate the things that his child can do that a chimpanzee couldn't do if he had an IQ of 150. And he gets into the, all the things relative to uh, aesthetic appreciation of art, appreciation of music, uh, the, the warmth qualities, uh, the ability to, to believe in God, to worship God, uh, the things revolving around love and the emotions and the family, and uh, the, a sense of alt, a, a feeling of guilty when, uh, be, when he does something that's wrong. And he said he could have never got into that quality of soul in any other way than, than in, in something like that. And he names all kinds of other experiences with just what started out as something bad. But from his standpoint, he honestly believes it's been a positive spiritual thing in his life and his family all through the years. I think one of the best ways, too, to, to at least for me, to, to appreciate the discipline of the Lord is to think of your children and how you know you spank them and that's not pleasant at all you don't want to do that but it's to keep them maybe from going out in the road and getting killed or getting hurt getting burnt by the stove or whatever it's to save them pain and i, I think if we look on it in the same way god's discipline then we can learn to appreciate it then i think the other thing about the innocent suffering remember that he's saying that uh, you that just like job didn't bring that on himself but you live in a world where people do sin, and God is not going to tamper. God's experiment won't work if he tampers with our free choice. And it's, it's by not tampering that his law is actually vindicated and proved right in the long run. Anybody else have any comments?